thank you for downloading the second hour of the Reading Room Live recorded at the Lincoln Book Festival 2011 at the Bishop Greaves Theatre. We've got more spoken word and live music for you and we started this second hour with something that I'd written. This is called The Former Poet Laureate. You have one new message. Beep. Hi, Paul. Just calling about the former Poet Laureate. His agent has told us he will be very happy to see you before his talk on Philip Larkin at the Wordsworths Festival. He says he'll bash your head against the wall and tell you why poetry is so great. Beep. I've been threatened with physical violence by the former Poet Laureate. What should I do? Tell Buckingham Palace, pack a gum shield. Sure, he's a bit older than me, but Google Images tells me he's in better physical condition and possibly has a longer reach. I'm sure it's just a misunderstanding. The Wolds Words Festival had a good lineup last year, including Radio 4's Charles Collingwood and Nicholas Parsons. Good draws with interesting anecdotes abound, but as Loweth is a little out of the way and we run our programme on a budget of zero, We arranged to meet the organisers of the festival beforehand, but made no further arrangements for interviews or reviews of the participants. Then I mentioned to one of the organisers of the festival that we were considering making a documentary on my relationship with poetry, and she kindly offered to organise an interview with the former Poet Laureate. I'm at an early stage in my relationship with poetry, still forgiving it if it stays out late. I've enjoyed most of the poetry we've recorded for the reading room and particularly liked the poetry that's made me laugh and the material that's made me take a step back and think. As we've recorded poets, I've asked them about their relationship with poetry and the reactions tend to be along the lines of falling in love with poetry, just as I did hearing the Beatles during my childhood. Music and poetry, of course, are part of each other's being. I must confess that when we feature poets, I rarely interview them because my knowledge on the subject is so inferior. Like drinking whiskey, I'm hoping that it's going to come with age, although the last time I drank whiskey, I was sick through my nose. So it might take a while, but I've started the journey. However, something must have gone awry in the conversations between our contact at the Waldwards Festival and the former Poet Laureate's agent, and then between the former Poet Laureate's agent and the former Poet Laureate, in order for the former Poet Laureate to offer me outside. What if the threat from the former Poet Laureate was much more than this, and the former Poet Laureate's agent had dumbed it down a little, and our contact at the Wald's Words Festival had dumbed it down a little also? Would I end up wearing concrete shoes just because I didn't appreciate poetry as much as the former Poet Laureate? The former Poet Laureate has a poem written in huge letters on one side of the building opposite Sheffield train station. I've been there recently with plenty of time on my hands, but I chose to walk straight past it and go to the pub. I might have even given a little shrug as I walked past, but I couldn't be sure. Although I did make a mental note not to mention this to the former Poet Laureate in case I woke up in the morning to find myself sharing a horse's head stealing the covers. Now, as we fit the reading room around real life, we have to prioritise such things as families and work. And on the day I was due to meet the former Poet Laureate, childcare for me was still an issue. So rather than do a Harry Potter and lock my children in the cupboard under the stairs, I was forced to cancel. My wife, though, finished work a little early that night. So a quick glance at the clock suggested I'd be able to make it to the venue to meet the former Poet Laureate for our previously agreed time. But would it still be okay 
No one was able to answer my calls to check, so I decided to take the gamble and set off. I was greeted very kindly at the Riverhead Theatre in Loweth, and if you ever get the chance, I'd recommend a visit. It's a lovely little place, extremely helpful ushers and very friendly office staff. And this helped buffer the news that the former poet laureate had not got my message and gone out for some supper. Supper! I hate that word. To me, supper means a late-night bowl of cereal, not an evening meal. It's a class thing, I suppose. And although I try to live my life fighting prejudice, I'm shockingly prejudiced against the middle and upper classes, especially if they use the word supper when they mean meal or tea or food or snack or even a bite to eat. They say you're softening your views as you grow older, and generally this means people turn more right-wing. I have just started to let people get away with saying dinner when they mean tea for their evening meal. Not much, you might think, but it's a slippery slope. So I had no interview with the former poet laureate. I'd heard the word supper. Things were not looking good. My contact at the theatre, however, remained confident that we'd be able to grab a few minutes, either during the interval or even at the Q&A session at the end, so the evening wouldn't be totally wasted. I took my seat and I was treated to an informative and entertaining lecture on Philip Larkin, someone I knew nothing about before attending. The former poet laureate delivered his talk with charm, and it has to be said, good patience, considering the technical difficulties with the PA system. The former poet laureate also revealed a memoir of Larkin's that had never been published, and I felt rather privileged. During the interval, I was informed that the former poet laureate would not be available for interview that evening, as he was no longer in that frame of mind. I sloped into the Q&A session feeling rather disappointed and not even able to ask a question as the host, a Siren FM colleague, would recognise me, explain who I was and turn the air a purple shade of awkward. Now, during the Q&A, the former poet laureate started getting grumpy about the technical difficulties with the PA system and answered questions rather abruptly. And I've wondered over time whether my difference of opinion about the attitude of the former poet laureate in the two halves of his appearance at the Woldswords Festival has anything to do with being turned down for an interview halfway through. But to make sense of this, I also remember the former poet laureate refusing to read any of his own or even Philip Larkin's poetry on the grounds that it had been a long day. I wondered if, like me, the former poet laureate had got up at 5am to work in a factory after going to bed late because he was preparing questions for the former poet laureate. Did the former poet laureate then spend an exceedingly risky amount of that time in that factory trying to arrange childcare but to no avail? Did the former poet laureate then go to the schoolroom, cook tea, change pooey nappies and do the washing up, all with an air of disappointment hanging over his very being because he was unable to get to interview the former poet Laureate. Had the former poet laureate then battled his way through rush hour traffic on a Friday in Louth of all places to interview the former poet laureate, not even knowing if the former poet laureate knew that his plans had changed and he was now able to have his head bashed against the wall by the former poet laureate? I don't know, but I doubt it. More than likely, the former poet laureate simply had two much supper.
as I'm sure most of you know, the former poet laureate is the patron of the Lincoln Book Festival. Its very survival is in no small part down to his hard work, support and reputation. He gave a reading earlier this week, which I'm informed was superb. I was uh, unable to attend. I was eating my tea. (laughs) Now it's time for our next artist, who will be reading from her second novel, The Newgate Jig. I'm delighted to introduce someone with so much writing talent that it spreads to the emails she sends to organisers of live spoken word events. Please welcome Anne Featherstone. Yes, I am going to read from uh, the very beginning of this uh, second novel, The Newgate Jig, which is set in 1850s uh, London. Um, And it is out in paperback next month, which is rather nice for me. Um, The prologue to uh, the the Newgate Jig uh, is called Going to See a Man Hanged. There is nothing more dreadful, surely, than seeing one's own father hung. All the horrors of this world, the wars and famines, plagues and pestilences, cannot compare with the sight of one's father upon the scaffold and the rope around his neck. It arouses the most extraordinary sensations of awe at the enormity of the event and despair at one's utter helplessness in the face of it. But there is also much to see, such variety of humanity in the gathering crowd. The blind beggar and his attempts to escape the thieving attentions of the bully. The brightly gowned young woman and her companion. And a thin, pale-faced boy, perhaps nine or ten years old, whose clothes were once good ones, a serviceable jacket and trousers, a shirt and neckerchief, but which are now worn and shabby in animated conversation with an older man. The boy's voice rises and falls like birdsong above the din. You should come away now, Barney, before it begins. This is no place for you, the man is saying with warmth, taking the boy's arm and turning him about. Look, that crowd which is coming and going and looking as though it has daily business in any shop or counting house is here for only one reason. That crowd intends to be amused, and you should not be a part of it. I'm not amused, says Barney defensively, shaking himself free. I've not come to laugh. But you'll be standing cheek and shoulder with those who have, returned the other, with the followers of the drop, and those who take pleasure in the misery of their fellows. At this, the boy winces and works his mouth around as if he is about to retaliate, and he rubs his red eyes vigorously with his two fists until the tears, which are threatening to spring forth in a flood, retreat. I know all about them, he says finally, and Pa did too. Yes, and that is why he is here and why you would do well not to be. Your father was foolish. He should have known better. Someone told lies about him, cried Barney. Pa said it was all lies. Ah, maybe it was, but it has still marched him to the gallows. Once again, the boy is moved to reply and again rubs his eyes until dirt and tears are smeared across his face. Pa Pa has friends who will not betray him. A clever fellow, he swallows hard. 
Pa said he wrote a letter and gave it to him and he would send it to the Queen and the Lord Mayor of London. Like he is repeating a prayer so often uttered that the words have become only sounds. His voice trails away. He has it, says the other quietly. He has the letter. But go now, while you can. Barney shakes his head, turns about, and joins the army of humanity. Whilst the older man debates whether to follow him, watches him out of sight, and then, hunching his shoulders against the cold, posts himself through the next tavern door. Although the hour is early, the crowd is growing by the minute around the platform, which crouches dark and square and ready against the grey stone of Newgate. All is grey, especially the sky, which, like a sodden rag, wrings out of itself a dirty mist, soaking the crowds which flood towards the prison walls. Since before the murky dawn, the taverns and hotels, butchers' shops and coffee houses have already had their full quota of paying spectators. Every window and doorway that offers a view of the square is occupied. Now, anxious not to miss a moment's pleasure, they have climbed trees and posts and walls. A slight young man with a shock of orange hair like a human pipe cleaner has shinned up a drainpipe onto the roof of a private house and despite the best efforts of the owner to get him down is perched with his back against the chimney stack, perished with cold but determined not to miss a trick. Barney sees all of this and nothing Allowing himself to be swept along by the crowd, he plunges into the mass of bodies, determined to get close to the front. Square shoulders rise up in front of him like a bastion, however, and though he wriggles and squirms through a forest of legs and endures hard cuffs and elbows and kicks, he has eventually to be content with being wedged between a tall man in city black, perhaps an undertaker's assistant, and a chimney sweep, also in dusky attire, just on his way to work. Thankfully, neither is inclined to conversation, and both are so studiously determined to keep their places that in doing so, they allow Barney to keep his, and they are in stark contrast to the wild carnival crowd pressing around him, hallooing and cheering, and so merry that the pieman and the gingerbread seller hardly need to call out their wares. But this is no country fair. No, this is something quite other. Here is a congregation gathered to worship not some way-faced saint, but the noose and the gallows. And as the human tide fills the square and laps the streets around, there rises from it a murmur of voices, like a catechism, telling the moments as the hours, hands of the neighbouring church clock move on. There is activity around the scaffold. Policemen push back the crowd and patrol the perimeter, keeping their eyes peeled for pickpockets and ignoring the taunts of the boys who, five deep, form the first line of spectators. The rumble of carriages, for the gates of the prison are close by, signal the arrival of officials, and the crowd lurches forward to catch a glimpse. Past seven o'clock now, the bells ringing out the moments and cheering the spirits of the crowd, which, despite the heavy rain, is still in a holiday mood and surges, surges to and fro. 
The boy is sensible of the mighty crush behind him and glances anxiously over his shoulder. But his stalwart companions, who have been silent for almost two hours, the chimney sweep chewing slowly upon a piece of bacon fat and only once taking a long draught from a stone bottle in his bag, stand firm. At last, the clock strikes eight and the boy's unblinking gaze is trained upon the door. Such a little door. When it opens, a change comes over the holiday crowd. Jocularity trembles, good humour shrinks, and there rises an ugly murmur of satisfaction as the platform fills until the last much-anticipated figure appears, at which a terrible silence falls. He is small and slight, and, staggering slightly, is supported by one of his attendants, to whom he turns and thanks, only realising at the last moment that the gentleman who steadies him so gently and looks for all the world like a linen draper will shortly assist him into the next world. With a hand under his elbow, he is directed to the great chain dripping black from the beam, And from that singular position, the loneliest place in all the world, the man turns to face the crowd. He does not see any single faces, but his gaze gaze ranges across the expectant mass, all turned and fixed upon him. With a gasp, the boy raises himself up on his toes and sets his face like a beacon towards the figure, as if trying to arrest his look. But the man is stubborn, and will not see him, and the boy mutters something under his breath, at which the undertaker's assistant glances sharply and seems inclined to speak. I will serve him out, Barney whispers, and then with increasing noise and urgency, as the tears spring to his eyes, I will serve him out, I will serve him out, I will serve him out. The linen draper is poised with the hood. The clergyman is done for the day. Even the rain has stopped. Suddenly, the man on the scaffold hears the boy's cry rising above the humming silence, turning, turns his head madly backwards and forwards, searching the crowd, even trying to stumble forward. The boy continues to call, and the chimney sweep and the undertaker's assistant, though a little discomfited, say nothing. But someone must... The congregation is hungry for the spectacle, and from deep within the throng, a voice roars, Get on with it! And another, Murderer! And finally, Stretch his neck! In an instant, that general appeal is taken up, whilst on the scaffold, the man unpicks the crowd, frowning in his effort to find one face in 10,000, until, like a moment of revelation, it is there. The man's ashen face tightens, and the boy, desperate with misery, still cries, I will serve him out! I will serve him out! Sturdy leather straps have been produced, the linen draper securing the man as quickly as a knot in a reel of cotton. The man struggles. No, Barney, no, let it be, he cries, his face broken by grief and fear. And if anyone cared to listen, they would hear him cry, My son, Barney, my son. But this crowd does not hear. 
And besides, this crowd needs to have its parties attired in black or white, needs to be partisan, so that finding that it does not know who or even what to support, it begins instead to bay, at which the hangman, with one swift action, pulls the hood over the man's head and in two steps reaches the post and draws the bolt. The crowd roars with one voice, but the boy, as if he is trying to ensure that his voice is the last sound the man hears, soars above theirs over and over. Pa! 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 The Reading Room features an interactive book group on each programme, set up just as any other book group, although we do drink less wine. By using the Reading Room list from the Lincolnshire Library Service, we know we're reading some of the same books as the 180 reading groups in Lincolnshire alone. This month, we're reading this, John Peel's Margrave of the Marshes. So if you're one of the many people... To have read this, please let us and the Reading Room listeners know what you thought. Email readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk and, of course, get in touch if you'd like to be on our review panel in the studio for any future reviews. In fact, the soundtrack to our next programme on Sunday, the 5th of June, will be completely John Peel-influenced with Peel sessions, bands that John discovered and brought to the world's attention, and we'll also be featuring a couple of unsigned bands too. And we should also mention that any mistakes you hear in that episode will be a tribute to John's unique broadcasting style. And it's time now for some more poetry. Please welcome back, for the second time this evening, Paula Tang. Man on a train. There's a man on a train. He's doing something with a touchscreen phone. His suit is the colour of a dark cloud, but it's lined with golden thread. This man is serious. There is a man with a notebook. You know the kind I mean. Things are big. Then they get smaller. Then they get bigger. We race to the finish. A look is a trigger. Human endeavour, we hope, is the winner. But that won't be the case if those things keep getting bigger. Poison. All over town and all along the walls, there is light bearing down and ropes from rafters fall. A wicked game is in play, a pious pen will flay. Toxic tongues will revel in reputations torn away. You've nothing good to say and no beauty you behold. Fanatics chop and change allegiance based on what you're told. And what of all the souls who trade in fancy shadow? Innocent and set upon, they too bear teeth and swallow you whole. Thank you. Now, this uh, special edition of The Reading Room, live from the Lincoln Book Festival, broadcasting on Siren FM, Lincoln's first community radio station. And if you'd like to become a volunteer at Siren FM, you can do just like I did around about 18 months ago, get in contact. All the details you need are at sirenonline.co.uk. I started out by putting community reports together, spotted a gap in a spoken word entertainment, and put together a pilot. And at this stage, our wonderful producer Johnny got involved, and the rest is history. 
And when we first started the reading room, we also began a lovely working relationship with our friends at Writing East Midlands, an organisation that offers support and creates opportunities for writers in our region. And they helped us by putting us in contact with a wealth of talent, one of which was Louis Malloy, an author from Nottingham. He writes short stories and novels from which he makes an annual salary of just over £12. Sinatra Sang is a short story inspired by a friend of his called Frankie Fortune, who works as a crooner in old people's homes. Frankie is renamed here as Frank Sinatra, Louis Malloy. Yesterday was Tuesday, and just after lunch I saw Frank Sinatra walking around the roses again. I was in the big lounge, helping to move the chairs and making space for a kind of stage at the front. He always arrives half an hour before the show, and if it's a nice day, he looks at the flowers and chats to anyone who's outside. He's a friendly guy, and he's good with the old folk. Us old folk. Let's face it. We set up the room, but then the start was delayed because some of the ladies were making phone calls. Sinatra waited. He's very patient like that. He does quite a few residential homes in the area, so it's not like he's got all day to hang around. I hardly ever use the phone now, and I don't get many calls, but that's fine. Frank came in and stood in the hall, looked in the big mirror, and adjusted his hat. He knew I was watching him, and he did some of the business, like straightening his tie and shooting his cuffs. Then he winked at me. Nice to see you, Frank. And you, Frank. That's always a good one, because I'm Frank too. Actually, he's not really a Frank, so it's a double joke. I've never asked him his real name. That would feel a bit unnecessary. Not that you'd mistake him for Frank once you hear him talk. He's got an accent from somewhere around this part of the country. North Knots, maybe Yorkshire. It's a mellow voice, but nothing like how he sings. Is my stage ready, then? Sure, Mr. Sinatra. And your broads? He gave me a big laugh for that. He does some saucy patter himself, and he knows just how to pitch it. So do I, a bit anyway. I used to play some guitar and sing, and I know that getting the audience on your side is all part of it. Doesn't have to be great comedy... Just something to let you make friends. Temporary friends. When Miranda and I lived in Greece, I did quite well in a few bars, playing the old 60s stuff and some sing-along folk songs. We had friends over there. Good ones too. But when she died, I didn't want to see them. I sat alone in our little house on top of the hill. I had thought that we'd both die there because that was where we'd finally built a back wall against the picture of our dreams and made ourselves a real home. Five years in the sun, then she died, and suddenly I was in another dream, a foreign land where I didn't need to be. I went screaming down the mountain, waving a bottle of brandy around, down to the sea and screaming all the way against the wind. When they found me, I was in shorts and T-shirt, cold as a big slab of white fish. So after a few months' recovery, I came home, far from prodigal and nobody's son. Hadn't been for years. The bits of money and the pension got sorted, and I ended up here. And it's all right. It really is. Because I'm not alone. And isn't that the point of life? Not to be alone. 
better to be with the one you love. But when that option is gone, still better to be with the folks here than to be alone. Sinatra sang. He was good. Got the crowd on his side without playing up to them. We all listened and I watched the old girls at the front swaying gently with their pruny little faces all lit up and their eyes twinkling like they do. They were kind of in love with him, the blue stocking bobby soxers, and why not? Between songs he was good with the jokes and a bit cheeky with the girls and we returned to the here and now. But when the music played again from the speakers and he began to sing in that smooth brown voice, then we were away. Away from the worries and the cares and the sometimes God-bereft tragedy of the whole thing. That's what music's for. What wine and love-making and the dreamy blue ocean are for. He went out with the big numbers. Fly me to the moon and New York, New York. He doesn't do my way, though there are always a few calls for it. He told me that he just doesn't like it. But I think he's wiser than he lets on, or else than he knows. We don't want to be hearing a song about a man looking back at his life. Not at our age. Good show, Frank. Thanks, Frank. We shook hands, and the old girls waved him goodbye as he drove off in his van. So, yesterday was a good day. Tuesdays always are. Then, like she was reading my mind, one of those ladies who have all lived long and suffered said, I love these afternoons. She turned to her friends. We look forward to it so much, don't we? And they all said yes, because they do. Of course they do. But none of them look forward to it more than me. Now it's time for some more live music. Please welcome back Viv Morel. As the sun begins to fade, there begins another day. While we spin around a star and feel unable, see the rise and see the Shadowed on a kitchen wall In hands of time And seeing just as many faces See, now it's going On the winds of change Summer to winter Going back again Just the seasons of time Till I walk with the sun Take my hand until we find Change over
Fallen leaves on the ground Cold as soon coming round Loose connections will defy The open spaces See, now it's coming On the winds of change Winter to summer It's coming back again Just the seasons of time Till I walk with the sun Take my hand until we find Change listening to The Reading Room Live here on Siren 107.3 FM. Now, our next guest will read a short story called Ladies' Night, taken from his e-book, Breasts and Other Things, which is available via Amazon. It's the only short story he had that would fit into our time slot. However, it's so short, he added another, Broken Hearts for Dinner. So please put your hands together for Brian Rance. Hi, Ladies' Nights is the shortest story of Breast and Other Things, and that's because it had to be under 250 words and involve uh, a wheelie bin. And it goes like this. The plan was simple enough. Dress as a woman, infiltrate, infiltrate the male strip club, and while the drunken housewives ledge guys in G-strings, I'd make their handbags a little lighter. I wobbled in on three-inch heels with nothing more than odd looks. Not easy for a 14-stone plumber. The trouble started when the greedy cow in row 13 was more interested in confectionery than the muscle being professionally displayed on stage. She reached back into her Prada bag to find my fat, sticky fingers rubbaging through her caramels and banana fudge. Instantly, her face turned to stone. She grabbed my hair, tugging hard, only to find she was now holding a cheap wig. Freaking out, she threw the man-made fibres skywards and screamed, "'It's a man!' There was over a 1,000 women in that auditorium, all baying for male flesh. Five hunks had been whipping them into a sexual frenzy for the last hour. I dashed up the aisle as manicured fingers clawed at my clothing. The blouse went first, quickly followed by the skirt. I sprinted through the foyer in just stockings, French knickers and a bra, a mob of lust-crazed women in hot pursuit. Turning to Parliament Street, I spotted the bin. 
It seemed like a gift from God. After two hours hidden in the stinking contraption, it didn't. I carefully lifted the lid of the wheelie bin and looked out, then tumbled onto the cold pavement. I lay there frozen, limbs stiff, unable to move. A sensible black shoes and black serge skirt appeared before me. Nice panty, sir. Mind explaining yourself? This was going to be tricky. Hearts for Dinner uh, isn't in, in the ebook Breast and Other Things, but it was still written by me, Brian Rance, and it goes something like this. I put it in a pan with garlic and oil. I simmered it gently, but never made it boil. Your broken heart, along with mine, I'm drowning them in cheap white wine. Crystal glasses, candles burn, you spit venom, now my turn. There's apple sauce for porky pies, it helps me swallow your blatant lies. You're overcooked and overdone, I'm getting a takeout, a foreign one. A lean Italian tagliatelle or a spicy Bombay minx. Something hot and tasty, not something cold that stinks. The tablecloth is white and neat, but below the surface we generate no heat. Is there dessert? Do we care? Cordon Bleu is taking us nowhere. You once loved my meaty loaf, now you think I'm a useless oaf. I once loved your current buns, now I wish you had smaller ones. I'll wash up, you can dry, let's not try your apple pie. I'll leave my cream in the can, can you tell I'm a bitter man? So I guess it's time to say adios, goodbye, turn the hob down, let it simmer. Looks like it's broken hearts for dinner. to Brian. Over the past few days I've been fluttering around the festival promoting, interviewing and at times being a general nuisance. My feeling is that it's been a great success. A few unfortunately had to be cancelled but and I quote some very chosen words by the patron of the festival, the former poet laureate Sir Andrew Motion The Lincoln Book Festival is a bold and ambitious programme and it is just that. The people of Lincoln and of course the people we've opened our city gates to have met authors, had books signed and discovered new genres. They've discussed literature, sometimes at length in the bars after the events. And yesterday at the family day, children of all ages had lots of fun, not just with books, but they were encouraged to be creative and explore ideas. As well as the bigger names appearing at the festival, local writers and poets have featured strongly in the lineup, and many new writers have been given the opportunity to get involved and meet their potential audience. So I'd like to thank John Grubb, the chairman of the festival, and Sharon Stone, who've organised the events, as well as countless other volunteers and sponsors that have helped organise the festival in what must be said are very trying circumstances. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for our final performer of the evening, Gareth Calway. One man and his masks. A bardic storytelling, a one-man show, giving an alternative view of the origins of Britain, from which you're about to hear an excerpt. It's touring nationally this year and into 2012. Next up after this is the Holt Summer Festival in Norfolk, July 25th, and the Edinburgh Fringe throughout August. Details on garethcalway.co.uk and studio CDs are also on sale. This is Boudicca's revolt against the Romans, done as a punk rock tour, and includes her engagement with the 9th Legion just outside Lincoln. The ancient Celts fought naked, so it's a good job this is radio. <laughs> and it's, this is Norfolk's entry for Eurovision. AD 60, Boudicca beaten, bowed, bloodied and dispossessed. 
all quiet on what the Romans might call the front line of history. Procurator Dicianus Catus is flogging off the forests, garden grabbing the graves and making a killing in the city. The vanguards, citizen bankers and slaves, the domestic drudges, call girls and matrons who used to be Celtic women are all doing their business as usual in the safe colonial squares of Roman Britain. The elected members are filling in their expenses forms on their way to the forum and letting out their second villas to the chaps one did Latin at school with. Suetonius Paulinus, the provincial governor, is absent in North Wales, slaughtering druids and desecrating the oak groves of Mona, doing his bit for the environment. Ho, 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 ho! Oh, 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 When suddenly, out of the blue, the sky falls in and the forests erupt again through the nice tiled floors of Colchester. Boudicca and her hazelwattle people are in revolt. The eastern half of Britain rises with her. Kick over the walls, cause governors can fall. How can you refuse it? Let fury have the hour. Anger can be power. You know that you can use it. Rock, rock, clash, city rockers in the city. Rock, rock, clash, city rockers in the city. In the city, there's a thousand things I want to say to you. Rock, rock, clash, city rockers in the city. In the city, there's a thousand things I want to say to you. Beer. Not wine, trousers, not skirts, pretty wild horse country in the city. The Anarchy Tour, AD 60 or 61. If you can remember it, man, you weren't there. We'd gone down an absolute storm at Camaladunum. They were calling it Duncamullus, the old British name in her honour. Never mind the Romans. Here comes Boudicca and the Banshees. Here come the Stranglers. Here come the Damned to a town near you now. And what a town. Proto-Essex man, Colchester. The model Roman herb. The colony, Camelodunum. The sound of the suburbs rocked to its foundations. Show home stomped to a cinder, whooshed in the fire that flamed from her loins. And there were some neat little gigs to come, in no particular order. The big farewell at the St. Albans Empire, and then, good night, very larmium. Right! Now! <laughs> There's no future in your Roman dream, your traffic lanes and your shopping schemes, your soapless baths and your manly steam. The I Cine Queen B is making free with your city. It's the only way to be. Some out-of-town fortresses to raise the roofs at. Boudicca, Boudicca, there is no safe European home. This is no Vestal Valium Rome. There is no safe European home. This is no Vestal Valium Rome. 
Boudicca, Boudicca. Knocking the Ninth Legion dead near Lincoln. Every bit of clothing also make you pretty. You can cut the clothing. Grey is such a pity. I should wear the clothing of Britain's mistress, Vicky. Meet my tailor. She's called Boudicca. I know it's going to fit. Heads and thugs will rock and roll. Heads and thugs will rock and roll. Heads and thugs will rock and roll, and Roman dudes will bleed. All of them, except that plodding heavy metal joke they call a cavalry, the ally who scarpered. Now we're on the road again. The Roman road, straight as a sword, to little old Londinos on the father of rivers. Londinos, the Britain the Britons have lost. Londinos, named from the ancient Celtic god of light and harvest. Londinos, named from the ancient British word for wild. Londinos, the Britain the Britons have lost in monumental vitae imperium. Nil futurus, nil liberatus, tedious librium londinium. Never mind the pansies people and the pseudo-Greco-dreaming, disguising the Roman bankers and new rich salesmen scheming. Never mind the fat cats in their new rich concrete flats. Never mind the Roman tick accountants and marts. Never mind the hum-drumming boredom now. Here comes the pogo with death and co. Here comes blood-spinning anger Joe. Here comes... Boudicca! London's burning! Lincoln's burning! Babylon's burning. A better Boudicca was never quite buried. That is why you can be our moon-white goddess walking between Celtic daughters in Cardiff. Why you can ride that moving Oak gracious, there and not there, at the heart of government. Iron coach to nowhere, the Victorians invented for you in Whitehall. Though your real Iron Age chariot was mostly holly wood and light as air. The maddened mother making a chariot stand on the stolen innocence of her children. A matriarch martyr dying for her people. A great British rebel with a cause. A Norfolk hero tale. A wild, turning North Sea tide. A woman who would not lie down. Now, other than having the idea for a live event at the book festival, I can take no further credit. We've been helped along the way on a wave of positivity and can-do attitudes. 
I'd especially like to thank the Bishop Greaves Theatre for hosting us, and especially Bev Deakin, Chris Olney, and Julie Catterson, who is no longer with the theatre, but was very much involved in setting up tonight. For Siren FM, I'd like to thank Barney Chowdhury, Deborah Wilson, and the team of volunteers at the station for their continued support of the Reading Room, and of course, our managing editor, Andrew David, who, when I proposed the idea of a recorded event, had the ridiculous but wonderful idea of broadcasting it live. The backbone of tonight's event is without doubt the technical and production team. Tom Morris producing and the team of here filming. Jake back at Siren FM overseeing the broadcast and my personal hero, Liam Juniper, who never wobbled no matter how many times I phoned him with stupid questions. Uh, I'd also like to thank the BBC for helping us uh, transmit tonight and Tim uh, from the BBC for coming out on a Sunday evening. I'd also like to thank Kathleen Drury for her help front of house this evening and of course all our performers. Thank you very much. The, uh, the Reading Room started out well over a year ago as a solo project. An old school friend got in contact and asked me if I needed any production help, and so a great team has been formed. Me being a nitwit and Johnny sorting everything out. Johnny is an incredible producer to work with, not only bringing innovative ideas to the programme, but also providing sensitive feedback when required. And we'd also like to thank our friends and family for their support, especially our wives, who've had to put up with phone calls, emails and meetings at times when we perhaps should have been doing other things. And finally, chiefly, yourselves, for coming along tonight and listening at home. It's been great. Thank you and good night. Thank you for downloading the Reading Room Live. We really hope you enjoyed it. For more information and to get in touch with the programme, email us readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk.
And that's it. That's the end of the first half. Thank you for downloading this part. The second half of the programme can be heard by downloading Room 10B. See you there.